Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you for your Shabbat, for this time that you have set aside for us to be able to enter into your presence and to encounter you. Lord, I pray that you will breathe new life into our midst as we open up your word, that it will be your voice that we hear and receive, that it will be your hand upon our lives. Father, that we will experience the power and presence of your Shekhinah in our midst. Lord, I pray that nothing of me is involved in this message, that as we open up your word today, that it will be your heart speaking forth, your desire for our lives coming upon us. And Father, that we will experience you face to face as a man speaks to a man. Father, I pray that you will anoint the word that come forth today to be a blessing before you and before all those that are hearing it and that our lives will be tra- tangibly changed going forward, prepared to uh, impact the world around us for the good of your kingdom and the glory of your holy name. B'shem Yeshua Meshechinu. In the name of Yeshua our Messiah we pray and everyone says, Amen. So this week we're in Parsha Shemini, which begins with Leviticus 9, verse 1, and deals with the continuation of the narrative of the anointing uh, of Aaron and his sons in the priesthood. Uh, we, we read in chapter 10 about the uh, death of Nadab and Abihu, who rushed into uh, the presence of God with, with uh kind of misplaced zeal and everything that goes on there. And we read it through, uh, through Leviticus 11 with the, the kashrut laws, the commandments of uh, what we can eat or what we can't eat, and so on. And so as we move through this Torah parsha, I actually want to focus on a couple of issues that really are, I think, powerful and important for us to, to focus on. I think are at the heart of the message of the Bible as a whole, and we see it come up time and time again throughout the Brechadashah, throughout the New Covenant writings. Um, and so if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to uh, Leviticus chapter 9. And we're going to begin with verse 22. And those that have listened to our messages over the past several weeks leading up to this point, uh, this is a, a passage of scripture that's very familiar to you already because we've kind of hit on it a few times leading up to uh, today. But I want to kind of refocus our attention here as we look at this week's Parsha. Uh, Leviticus 9 beginning with verse 22 says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. Then he stepped down from presenting the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offerings. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meetings, which is the Mishkan, the tabernacle. When they came back out and blessed the people, the glory of Adonai appeared to all the people. So we're going to pause there for a second. Specifically says that the Shekhinah, the glory of Adonai, appeared to the nation, right? So we know that the... uh, the, the column of fire and smoke led Israel through the wilderness for 40 years as they journeyed from Egypt to the promised land. We know that once the tabernacle is established and the Ark of the Covenant is placed within the Holy of Holies, that the presence of God, the, the divine glory of God, the cloud of His presence rested upon the mercy seat between the cherubim, the cherubim, uh, on the uh, Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. And we recognize that His presence sat there. And it was obvious that, it, that, that there was this ability for the nation of Israel and the nation around them as they were journeying to be able to see the presence of God in their midst because it says that they could see when the presence was resting upon the mercy seat and they could see when the presence lifted because it was when the presence lifted that they knew Israel knew it was time to break down their camp break down the tabernacle and move forward in their journey to the next phase the next step that God was taking them to and so it's important that we recognize that this wasn't something that Aaron and Moses uh, and, and Aaron's sons uh, Nadav and Abihu and Eleazar and Itzamar are uh, uh, Eliezer and uh, not Eliezer and Itamar, Eliezer and um, 
lost them. Eliezer and the other one, the fourth one. There's a fourth one. My mind went blank. The other dude, Eliezer and the other dude. That they, it wasn't just the, the, the priesthood, the Kohanim and Moses that were able to see the presence of God, but the entire nation of Israel saw it, and even more so. Remember, when Israel sins with the golden calf and God says he wants to wipe them out, and Moses falls on his face in intercession on behalf of the nation of Israel, what is it that Moses cries out to the Lord? What is it that actually grabs the attention of God as Moses is praying and kind of turns the tide so that God relents from what he said he was going to do, which, by the way, I don't think his intention was to wipe them out in that way in the first place. I think to some degree this was uh, a test to see how Moses was going to respond and so on, but that's a whole different story. But what Moses said is, but Lord, what is the nations around us? What are the nations around us going to think? What is Egypt going to think? If by your great might and power, by your hand, you led Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, just to slaughter them in the wilderness and not to fulfill your promises to them, what are the nations going to think? And so here we see that the nation of Israel, all of the people of Israel witnessed the presence of God descend upon the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle, upon the, the, the mercy seat. They may not have been able to see inside the Holy of Holies, but they saw his presence descend. They saw the revelation of the presence of God. Verse 24. Fire came out from the presence of Adonai and devoured the burnt offering, the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their face. Now, we've talked about this several times leading up to this week, but we're gonna, I'm going to hit on this again because I think the, the Hebrew here is very important. So the Hebrew for this phrase, the fire came from the presence of Adonai, is Eish milpanei Adonai, which is the fire from the face of God, that this fire came directly from the presence of God. So the way that uh, I kind of picture this happening in my head is the presence of God descended upon the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, and the Holy of Holies, and that as the, uh, the altar, the sacrifice was laid on the altar, that this fire literally came from the Holy of Holies, miraculously shot out from the Holy of Holies to the altar, lit the altar, and consumed the offering upon the altar with this divine fire. As a matter of fact, in verse 2 of chapter 9, when the beginning of this command of what the priests were to make an offering of comes up, in verse 2 it says, uh, the, the phrase uses, offer it before Adonai, speaking of the sacrifices offering, and it says, in specific, it says specifically in Hebrew, uh, which literally translates to approach the face of Adonai. So when the priests were bringing the offering to the altar, they were to approach the face of Adonai. So as they're looking toward the Holy of Holies, they are to approach the face of Adonai. They are to approach God in a very tangible sense, not literally walking into the presence of God, but they are to approach the presence of God face to face. And as the fire comes out and consumes the offering, the very next thing that happens is that Nadab and Abihu, which are Aaron's uh, two firstborn sons, Nadab and Abihu get excited. They get great anticipation. They light the incense on their, their incense pans and they rush into the tabernacle. Now, it's easy to, to picture that the tabernacle would have been full of the glory of God at this point, right? Because Aaron and, and Moses and Nadab and Abihu and the people of Israel are outside of the tabernacle, look, tabernacle looking at it. And so the, 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 the tabernacle was full of the presence of God. And so Nadab and Abihu, with this great zeal, albeit misplaced, this great zeal rushes into the, the presence of God. They want to rush in to encounter him. Uh, the Hebrew says that they rush in with Esh Zadar, with strange fire. 
Uh, and, and this is very, the, the language here is very closely akin to Abudazirah, which is a strange service or a strange uh, worship, speaking in reference specifically of idolatry. So they rush into the Ishmael Panel tonight, into the fire from the face of God with a uh, Azar, with a strange fire, one that didn't come from the fire of God, with a strange fire. And they rush in with a Kanazara, which is my own uh, little phrase there, Kanazara, which is a strange zeal. Uh, uh, their zeal was misplaced. It was, it was there, it was powerful, but it was misplaced in the way that they approached the presence of the Lord. And so uh, it, it's really interesting as we look at this, and then we move forward from here to Leviticus 11, and we read about the kashrut laws, we read about the, the way that we are to, to determine what foods can be eaten or not eaten. And in particular, verse 44, Leviticus 11, tells us the reason why that these commandments are here dealing with the, the kashrut laws, the kosher laws. And then we see this similar language in numerous other places throughout the Torah as well. Verse 44, Leviticus 11 says, For I am Adonai your God, Therefore, sanctify yourself and be holy, for I am holy. You are not to defile yourselves with any kind of creeping thing that moves on the earth, for I am Adonai, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Skipping to verse 47, to make a distinction between clean or unclean and clean and between the living thing that may be eaten and the living that may not be eaten. The reason for this is so that we will specifically be holy because Adonai, our God, is holy. So then this brings about the question of we're dealing with the fire from the face of God. We're dealing with the presence of God uh, descending upon the, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and the nation of Israel witnessing this directly in front of them. We deal with uh, Nadab and Abihu rushing into the presence of God with a misplaced zeal, with a misplaced passion for what the Lord was doing, and they run in with, uh, with, with unbridled irreverence because this is not the way God commanded that they approach him. And then we go forward to the, the Levitical laws on Kashrut, and it deals specifically with the idea of the separation of clean and unclean. And so we've got to wonder, why in the world is this discussion of clean and unclean so important in a section of Scripture dealing with the revelation of the presence of God before the entire nation, both in a positive sense with the presence of God descending upon the Mishkan, upon the tabernacle, and then also in kind of a negative sense with Nadav and Avi, whose death, because they rushed into the presence of God with a misplaced zil. And so in, in the Torah, we see these two Hebrew words come up over and over again, and the roots are tahor and tameh. Tahor is to be clean, or specifically ritually clean, and tameh is to be ritually unclean. And we can look at the idea of tameh to be unclean or ritually unclean with this idea of sinfulness or being uh, separated from righteousness. See, clean and unclean are issues dealt with throughout the Torah and are clearly seen in discussions of physically being ritually clean or unclean, such as the kashrut laws, nidads, arat, encountering a corpse, and so on and so forth. But clean and unclean are also, and specifically more so importantly, a spiritual reality as well. And why is this so important? Because of what the Mishkan really was, what the tabernacle really was, right? When the uh, priesthood was anointed, when the tabernacle was finished being consecrated, the priesthood was consecrated, what was the very first thing that God did? He presented the revelation of his presence, not upon a mountain in the distance that they couldn't approach, not uh, in front of them as they journeyed along, just kind of hovering there, but specifically resting inside of the camps of Israel, inside of the, the, the nation of Israel. So the purpose of the Mishkan was to literally be a dwelling place for the Shekhinah, or the divine presence, the divine glory of the Lord. The word Mishkan comes from the, uh, the root word Lishkon, 
which uh, means to rest and was considered to be the resting place for the Shekhinah, the, the presence of God, the divine glory among the nation of Israel. The Mishkan is also called Mishkan Ha'edut, which is the Mishkan of testimony, since it testified of God's forgiveness of the Jewish people for their sin with the Egel uh, Masecha, which is the golden calf, which was an Avodazarah, strange service or idolatry. If you pay attention to the narrative in, in Exodus, the actual construction of the Mishkan or the tabernacle comes after the sin of the golden calf, right? So Israel created this calf. They worshipped it. They had this huge party around it. Then Moses comes back down. He uh, shatters the, the tablets with the uh, Aseret Hadibrot, the ten words of the Ten Commandments on it. He berates Israel for their sin. We see the death of a bunch of people because of it and everything that goes on. And then we see Moses intercede on behalf of Israel. But then after all of this, after God said he wanted to wipe them out, after everything that happened, the Lord still proceeded to allow them to build the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which is a temporary dwelling place, a resting place for his presence in the midst of the people of Israel. So let that sink in. In spite of their sin, and in contrast to their sin, God still allowed for his presence to dwell in their midst in the tabernacle. It was after the sin of the golden calf that the tabernacle was built. It is often said that God's presence cannot reside in the midst of sin. Anybody heard this phrase before? We, we hear people say it quite often, uh, and, and I've even in, in my own just haphazardly made statements like this before, that the presence of God cannot dwell in the midst of sin. In other words, that the, the sin of Israel would make it impossible for God's presence to dwell there. The sin in our own lives would make it impossible for God's presence to dwell there. Yet, didn't Israel sin in a tremendous way with the Abu Zarah, the strange service of the eagle Masecha, of the golden calf? And yet he still allowed the Mishkan, the tent where his Shekhinah's divine glory rested among Israel, to be built. In spite of their sin, he still allowed it to be built. So we have this phrase that floats around. You know, there's all these... Um, extra biblical kind of uh, proverbial statements that exist, right? Uh, God only helps those that will help himself. That just doesn't exist in the Bible. It's not there. It's nowhere to be found. This is another one of those that God's presence cannot re uh, dwell in the midst of people, in the midst of sin rather. But nonetheless, after Israel's great sin of the golden calf, he still allowed for the building of his, of his dwelling place, temporal dwelling place, for his presence in the midst of Israel. He allowed the Mishkan, the tent where his Shekhinah rested among Israel, to be built. Wouldn't it be more accurate then to say that uh, instead of God's presence not being able to dwell in the midst of sin, that we are not able to reside within his presence when we are sinful or unclean? As believers, we are filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, with His Holy Spirit, which is His presence within us. The, the Ruach, the Holy Spirit, is literally His Shekhinah, His divine glory within us. We see very similar language in Acts 2 with the pour, pouring out of the Holy Spirit and, and the, the image of the tongues of fire and such upon the heads of the believers in Acts 2 as we do with the revelation of the presence of God in Exodus 19 and 20 and the revelation of the presence of God in Leviticus 10, uh, 9 with the, the consecration of the tabernacle and the priesthood. So we see these very similar things occurring. So his presence, his Shekhinah, his Ruach HaKodesh rests within us. But the question is, does his presence leave us? Does his Ruach HaKodesh leave us as believers when we sin, when we become unclean, when we fall short of the glory of God? Does his Ruach HaKodesh leave us? 
if this statement floats around that says God's presence can't dwell in the midst of sin, we are still sinful. Even when we're bought by the blood of the Lamb, even when we're redeemed, we still have to repent day in and day out because we still sin. Does His presence leave us? Or does it rather stand just as the tabernacle did as a testimony before God and before us to draw us back in Teshuvah and repentance before Him? Does His presence leave us? Or does it serve just as the tabernacle did, as this idea of the Mishkan HaEdut, the tabernacle of testimony, standing before the nation of Israel, standing literally in the midst of the nation of Israel, as a reminder of Teshuvah, as a reminder of the necessity for repentance to turn back, to return to our Heavenly Father. When Nadav and Avihu rushed into the Mishkan to encounter the presence of God, uh, which was sinful or, or unclean to do, not their, their, I, I wholeheartedly believe that their hearts were in the right place, that their zeal was, was a passionate, righteous zeal. They just went about portraying that zeal or acting in that zeal in the wrong way. So when they rushed in to encounter the presence of God, which was sinful, did, the, did God's presence suddenly leave Israel? When we see Israel then later in the book of Numbers uh, reject the promised land, does God's presence leave Israel? When we see the, the nation of Israel complain and grumble over and over again in the Torah, does his presence leave them? No, it doesn't. As Paul would say in Romans, heaven forbid, or may it never be. As a matter of fact, the very idea that God cannot dwell in the presence of sin presents an unrealistic expectation of fallen man redeemed by Messiah. The very premise sets up uh, sets us up for failure from the get-go because whether we like it or not, and I assure you God definitely does not like it, we will sin. Even as believers redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we will sin. We may sin less, doubtfully. We may sin in less terrible or even less obvious ways, and we may become better at hiding our sin from the world around us. But we will sin. We may repent faithfully and regularly, but we will still sin. Don't get me wrong. This is not to say we have carte blanche to sin whenever we want, to do whatever we want, however we want. But as Paul would say, again, heaven forbid, we do not have the right, the authority, or the ability to sin whenever we want just because. But we are human, bought by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed in righteousness, but as long as we live in a fallen world, we will continue to sin. And it's important for us to understand that just because we mess up, just because we fall short of the glory of God does not mean that His presence is going to leave us. It does not mean that He is going to forsake us or forget us or condemn us or walk away from us. But instead, His presence, His Holy Spirit, His Ruach HaKodesh resides within our hearts. And keep in mind this image of the tabernacle in the midst of the nation of Israel in which the presence of God rested in this tabernacle is a foreshadowing of the presence of God as Holy Spirit on our hearts as our bodies become the temporal dwelling place, the Mishkan, for the presence of God, a literal temporal resting place for His presence. His presence will not leave us when we sin. This doesn't give us right to do whatever we want, but it does in fact serve as a reminder, it serves as a testimony of the covenant between those of us bought by the blood of the Lamb and our Heavenly Father. As a reminder of the necessity that in spite of our sins, we must repent and return. We must turn around 
and make teshuvah. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, beginning verse 14, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What harmony does Messiah have with Belial, which is a, another way of, of talking about evil or, or Satan? Or what part does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement does God's temple have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says Adonai. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will take you in. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says Adonai Zevaot. Therefore, since we have these promises, loved ones, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of body and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, and it talks about this idea of putting off the old and putting on the new. So I tell you this, indeed, I insist on it, and the Lord walk no longer as the pagans do, stumbling around in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in them due to the hardness of their heart. Since they are past feeling, they have turned themselves over to indecency for the practice of every kind of immorali immorality with greed for more. However, you did not learn Messiah in this way. If indeed you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Yeshua with respect to your former lifestyle, you are to lay aside the old self corrupted by his deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So lay aside lying, and each one of you, uh, and each one of you speak truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, nor give the devil a foothold. The one who steals must steal no longer. Instead, he must work doing something useful with his own hands, so he may have something to share with the one who has need. Who has need. Let no harmful word come out of your mouth, but only what is beneficial for building others up according to the need, so that it gives grace to those who hear it. Do not grieve the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and quarreling and slander along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other for as God and Messiah also gave, forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love just as Messiah also loved us and gave himself up for us as an offering and sacrifice to God for a fragrant aroma. But, be, but sexual immorality and any impurity or greed, don't even let these be mentioned among you as is proper for Kedoshim, for holy ones. Obscene, coarse, and stupid talk are also out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Know for certain that no immoral, indecent, or greedy person who is really an idol worshiper at heart has an inheritance, any inheritance in the kingdom of Messiah, our God. And then Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 3 with the very same image and picking up with verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves in tender compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord pardoned you, 
so also you must pardon others. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfect harmony. Let the shalom of Messiah rule in your hearts. To this shalom you were surely called. Uh, lost my place there. Hang on a sec. Sorry. <laughs> To this shalom you were surely called in one body. Also be thankful. Let the word of Messiah dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of, of the Lord Yeshua, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then finally in 1 Peter, we read Peter talking in a very similar way in chapter 1, verse 14. We read this in our Torah service. It says, Like obedient children, do not be shaped by the cravings you had formerly in your ignorance. Instead, just like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in anything you do. For it is written, Kedoshim you shall be, for I am Kadosh. Holy ones you shall be, for I am holy. See, the presence of God does in fact dwell in the midst of his people still today just as it did in the days of old with the Mishkan or the tabernacle in the wilderness with Israel, the tabernacle placed in Shiloh with Israel, and ultimately the temple in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem, the, uh, uh, the Beit Hamikdash in Jerusalem uh, that Solomon built and later was destroyed and rebuilt and then rebuilt again in essence as Herod added on to it and, and, and created it even bigger and more uh, 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 decorative and what have you. The reality is, is that the presence of God dwelled in these temporal dwelling places as a foreshadowing of the presence of God dwelling among his people and the power and presence of his Ruach HaKodesh, his Holy Spirit in our lives. We know that it is only through the blood of Messiah Yeshua that the Ruach Adonai, the Spirit of God, can in fact reside within us and dwell in us and our hearts become, in essence, symbolically, the Ark of the Covenant in which his presence dwells upon. And he leads us just as he led Israel in the wilderness through his uh, presence. He leads us in our day-to-day -day lives if we are willing to submit to him through the leading of his presence in our hearts and our lives. And just as Israel continued to sin, unfortunately over and over and over again, David, Melech David sinned over and over and over again, yet was still considered a man after God's own heart. And it never tells us that his presence specifically left David. We see with Solomon that he was there. We see with uh, Peter when Peter renounced Yeshua or, or denied Yeshua three times that the, the Lord still made his presence known to him. We see over and over and over again the sin of individuals called by the name of God if we repent, if we make teshuvah, we are restored in spite of our sins. And his presence remains within us. See, this is the great discussion between whether or not we should try to uphold the, the Torah or not. Whether or not we should try to live out the commandments of the Torah or the commandments of the Old Testament. The reality is, is it's this discussion of, uh, or, or rather it's a discussion that's unspoken, but it's the core of this, this whole topic is the reality that the presence of God dwells within us. Right? So... If we sin and His presence doesn't leave us, then does that mean we can just continue to sin however we want, do whatever we want, and it really doesn't matter? Or does that mean that because His presence is within us, that us striving to be clean, righteous, and holy before Him takes on an even greater responsibility in our lives? And it's not something that we can do on our own. This is the, the core of what Yeshua speaks of in Matthew 5, that it's not about what we do on the outside, but instead what He takes care of on the inside so the outside cannot sin. 
right? Murder and hatred, lust and adultery. All four of those issues are dealt with in the Torah. They're nothing new, but Yeshua says, if you let me handle the inside, the lust and the, the hatred, the outside cannot sin, the murder and the adultery. If we just let the presence of God within us handle the inside and, and take care of our heart and protect and guard us, we will be Kedushim. We will be holy ones. We will be a clean dwelling place for the resting presence of God in our lives. And even when we sin as followers in Messiah, even when we sin, his presence does not leave us, but instead stands as a testimony before us and literally within us of the necessity for us to return back to him, of the necessity for us to repent and to make teshuvah back to him. We see over and over and over again that every great move of God in the scriptures was predicated by a great move of repentance by the people of God. The reality is, is his presence dwells within us, making us the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the temporal dwelling place of the presence of God here on earth now and forevermore until the return of Messiah and the establishment of his eternal kingdom. It makes us the dwelling place, the temporal dwelling place for his presence as a reminder to us, as a testimony to us of the necessity for repentance and so that the world around us, just as with Israel in the wilderness, the world saw the presence of God, the world around us will be able to see his presence in us and be drawn to the same drawing of repentance, the same ushering in of teshuvah, of return and repentance as we are as followers of Messiah. And just as Moses cried out on behalf of Israel in intercession before the Lord, what will the nations think if you turn your back on them now? The same is true of the presence of God in our lives. What will the nations see if God removes his presence from us? His presence is in our lives, not because there's something worthwhile and worthy innately within us, but because his presence makes us worthwhile and worthy because we are made in his image and likeness and as such we are deemed good as per Genesis 1. Yet in spite of that we chose to sin and God still made a way for his presence to be among us, to be in our midst and to lead us, guide us and reside within us so that not only we have the opportunity to make Teshuvah repent and return, but the world around us can see his might, his power, and his presence in our lives just as the nation saw in Israel when Israel journeyed through the wilderness so that they would turn their hearts to him in perfect faith and repentance and come to know the saving grace of Messiah Yeshua, the blood of the Lamb, and ultimately the power and the presence of His Ruach HaKodesh, His Shekhinah, His divine glory, His Holy Spirit, and their hearts and their lives as you and I do today as followers of Messiah. Let us be restored in holiness. Let us become Kedoshim, truly devoted to the reality of the presence of God in our lives and our midst. And let us give Him our all as we serve Him faithfully in spirit and in truth recognizing that his presence resides among us and let that be a point of reminder of testimony to return from our sinful ways and to make teshuvah b'shem yeshua meshachinu in the name of yeshua hamashiach we worship you lord we praise you father for being merciful and kind for being gracious for being slow to anger and quick to forgive father we thank you that you have placed your presence in our hearts and our lives and allowed us to return to you in spite of our old ways and that you have in fact not only created us in your image and likeness but by the blood of messiah you have recreated us and reestablished us 
and your image and likeness. And Father, we thank you that your presence resides within us as it did within the tabernacle, within the Mishkan in the midst of Israel. Father, we ask that you will continue to breathe new life into us and move upon us. Continue to draw us uh, as a testimony, Lord. Draw us back to you and repentance day out and day in so that the world around us may know that you are our God and that we are your people so that the world around us will know that you are holy because we are holy, that we are holy because you are holy. Father, move upon us now with the might and the power of your presence, O God. And let your glory be present in our lives. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. Amen and amen.